Amen. Thank you, Pastor Marvin. <clears throat> appreciate that and appreciate uh, Shade leading us in prayer this morning. And it does remind me, just to remind you, that uh, there are some opportunities to pray in the midst of our body. Shade every Sunday morning at 8 o'clock leads a prayer meeting down the hall, last room on the left. And you can come before the services, 8 o'clock, and pray for the services and uh, pray with Shade on that. If you just sat there this morning, I love listening to her pray. Come at 8 o'clock. You can pray too, and you can hear Shade pray at 8 o'clock uh, on Sunday mornings. Also, 6 o'clock on Saturday mornings, there's a men's prayer meeting right here in the sanctuary, 6 to 7 o'clock. Uh, Sam Afeadu leads that for the men. You can come out for an hour of uh, prayer and opening up the Word together there every Saturday morning. And then Tuesdays and Thursdays, we have some Zoom gatherings uh, that uh, meet from 8 o'clock to about 20 past 8, and you can meet there for fellowship and prayer as well. So those are all in the loop uh, every week, but um, I know you see them. If you get the loop, you see them there every week, but I thought important to mention them when we get the chance to as well. Speaking of the loop, many of you saw it last week. Uh, let you know that Mary Basler, I see you there, you are Mary, after 22 years in our church office is moving. And uh, so someone, I saw, heard an applause starting. Yes, we can pray. We can clap for Mary for 22 years. But we're going to take more time to clap next week. We're going to take, I want to take some time next week. But I mention that because next week will be her last Sunday. And so just plan after both services, Bill and Mary. Will, I say her, her and Bill aren't splitting up. Um, they, <laughs> she is moving down earlier than Bill, though Bill's still got his, uh, some work up here. So uh, you can talk with them about the details there. Uh, they're still together. That was not, I shouldn't say that. Um, but I just want you to come next week and uh, make sure you, say a few words to Mary and then maybe bring a card or so. I'd love for her to be able to read some of the ways because that's a ministry in the church office. I'd love her to be able to hear some of the ways that she has impacted other people's lives uh, here at Mount Hope. A couple other things in the life of the body just to keep in prayer. Uh, just a number of our people that uh, can use some special prayer and a touch of God's grace today. Marie Carvalho, who attends our Belmont location, her dad, Sam, passed away this past week. Sam uh, was also uh, an Assemblies of God pastor for many years. He actually pastored Christ Revolution Church, or it was St. Paul's then, over on, I don't know which direction is Lowell Street. I don't know which direction it is. But on Lowell Street, Middlesex Turnpike there, that church you see there, he pastored it for 53 years. Uh, so last year was 15 years for us. I'm thinking 53, that's a... That's a haul. He was there a long time. So we thank God for Sam. Pray for Marie and their family who are at our Belmont location. Pray for Kim Feste, uh, who's been a part of our Burlington location here. She lost her mom this week, and she also had a brother who had um, a tragic fall and is in a tough shape right now. So pray for Kim. If you know Kim, reach out to her. Uh, I see Theron McDonald here. We mentioned you last week, Theron, but your brother passed away a couple weeks ago, and we're still praying for you, Theron. And uh, that God would be with you. Uh, one more, my uh, Daryl Jones, uh, my father-in-law. If you could keep him in prayer. His nephew died uh, this past week that he found out about. So appreciate prayers for Daryl as well. And I'll mention one more who's not a part of our church body but is a part of the kingdom. 
Uh, some of you may know Anthem Church that meets in Burlington. We actually had uh, Colin and Liz here a number of years back when they were getting started. So they got news this week uh, that suddenly the location they've been meeting at in Bedford, which was the Bedford Doubletree, is closing like immediately. Um, and so they gave them 10 days notice. Uh, and to be fair, the local people didn't know either. Um, everyone they were talking to, uh, the national headquarters kind of shut it down. So... Um, so be praying for all the workers that are getting uh, losing their job there, but also be praying Anthem Church needs a home really quickly. Um, we are grateful for the other churches in our area that God sends to partner, to preach the gospel, to love people. So pray for Anthem Church and uh, Pastor Colin and Liz as they seek their next location. I think they have a couple leads, but we want them to find the perfect place for them. All right, so those things, things to be uh, praying about and keep in mind in your heart. So Abraham, we are back to Abraham, Genesis chapter 14. Uh, If you want to take out your Bible or grab one from the seat under you, you're going to want to take a look and follow along this morning. We're in Genesis chapter 14. We're talking about Abraham as the origin story of our faith. This, this man who walked in faith, we are a people who walk by faith. We are called to be a people of faith. And so looking at this really first, one of the just earliest people in our faith that followed God and believed God and how he did that is important. So the first week, two weeks ago, we said that faith goes before it knows. You know, Abraham, uh, God said go and Abraham went. He didn't know completely where he was going. Faith goes before it knows. The second week, last week, we said that faith trusts God's promises, rest on his faithfulness, and not ours. Faith trusts that God's promises rest on his faithfulness, and not ours. And those are encouraging thoughts, and we're going to look at another aspect of faith this morning. You know, we as Americans, this may be true for humans throughout the world, but I can only speak for Americans as far as how I am and what I see. Um, I think we have an interesting relationship with stuff. We have an interesting relationship with our stuff that we have. Um, Those things that, you know, we have in our house that kind of fill it up and we don't know what to do with sometimes or you know, what we, we have it or people give it to us and we don't know what to do. We have an interesting relationship. Some of us are savers. Who is the saver? Who, you're not throwing anything out. You are saving it. I, I, th- you know, the same thing happened in first service that other people were raising other people's hands and pointing <laughs> at other people. Apparently, the savers don't like to admit it, but whoever you're with knows you're a saver. Who's the throw it out person? Toss it, empty my house, minimize, right? We're just condoing it. Is that the condo? We're getting rid of it, right? We're, we're getting rid of it, right? Who are the repurposers? You want to repurpose. Now, some of you savers, you'll put your hand up now because you're like, I'm really just repurposing, <laughs> right? That's what I am. I'm really conscious of the environment. I save it. We have an interesting relationship with stuff. I think sometimes, and you learn this, I think, more than any time when you're going to move. And Mary and I have been talking about this. Because you never realize how much stuff you have until you have to stuff all that stuff in boxes. And when you have to stuff all that stuff in boxes, you're like, why do we have so much stuff? We moved six years ago. I have boxes in my basement I still have not opened yet. 
if I have not used it in six years, I, it must not be that important, but I still have it. So you can figure out which category I'm in. We have stuff. Sometimes we have stuff that we keep that we should let go of, that we should release, that we should get rid of. And then sometimes we have stuff that somehow we've gotten that we should have said no to in the first place. You know what I mean? Like some of you, you know, you went to a yard sale and you're like, oh, I can't just leave this. I got to take this, you know? I mean, where else am I going to find an ab roller anymore? You know, whatever else, you know, you're just like, I got to have this. Or someone's giving something away or you're driving down the street and someone's throwing something away and you're like, I can't believe they're throwing that chair away. And you're putting it in your car, you know, so we get stuff and then then we realize we probably probably should have said no to some of that stuff. Like when we moved into our house six years ago, the previous owner said, hey, do you want the Pepsi machine? And he said, I said, the Pepsi machine? He's like, yeah, I mean like a full-on, you know, machine, Pepsi machine. And I'm like, well, does it work? And he's like, yeah, it works. You know, we keep it, keeps the drinks cold in the summer and you can use it and the kids have fun. I'm like, well, that's kind of cool, right? Keep, leave the Pepsi machine. I have never got this machine to work a day in my life. I can't figure it out. Right? So all it is right now is, a, is like the greatest chipmunk home in the world. And I won't go near it because I know there's chipmunks in there. And, you know, people come over, they're like, oh, cool, you got a Pepsi machine. I don't have a Pepsi machine. I have a chipmunk house. That's what I have. Because sometimes you get stuff that you should have said no to. That you, it came your way and you should have rejected it. And, and you end up with that kind of stuff as well. It's true for Pepsi machines. It's true for, you know, yard sale items. I think it's true in our spiritual lives, in our lives, that, that there are things in our lives that we hold on to that we really ought to release, that we really ought to let go of, that we really ought to get rid of. And there are things in our spiritual lives, I think, that sometimes we have taken on that we said yes to that we probably should have said no to that we should have rejected, that we shouldn't have let them come into our life in the first place. Now, why we do that, I think there's probably any number of reasons. I think fear is a big one. I think sometimes fear, we hold things because we're afraid of losing them. We hold things too tightly, whether it's money or possessions or positions or people. Like we just hold them too tightly. We manipulate situations maybe because we don't want to lose, you know, someone maybe in our life or we don't want them to, you know, whatever. Like if I could manipulate the situation to keep Mary and Bill staying here, I would. Like we want to hold people tight and not let them go. We want to hold things tight. Not let them, I think that's sometimes fear. And sometimes we'll, uh, we'll take something we shouldn't because we think that's the only way we can get it. That's different than Pepsi machines, I understand. But you'll understand where I'm going. But Because I think that's true in our lives, that there's sometimes temptations, offers, and options that'll come our way that we say, ah, I better take this because I don't know if I'm going to get this any other way. And we should reject it. And we should say no. But we say yes. There's all kinds of reasons, I think, why that's the case. What I want to talk about this morning in our passage is how do we get away from that? How do we let go of things that we should let go of? And how do we say no and reject things and not take them into our life, even though they're tempting for us to take it? How do we say no 
to that in those situations when we should. And I, I want to look at that in our passage this morning. It's Genesis chapter 14. Now, we're going to read the entire chapter. And I want to tell you, you're going to, in the first two verses, say, why is Pastor Rick reading this entire chapter? Not because it's not God's word and it's not important, because I'm going to read about 10 names that you've never heard in your life. Not only you've never heard of them, you don't know anyone named these names. And you're going to get lost and confused. But let me tell you what's going on. Let me tell you why I'm reading this and what's going on. How many of you have seen Star Wars? What happens at the beginning of a Star Wars movie? Starts in space, you got the scroll, right? Boom. I don't know the music. Somebody do the music. Can somebody do the music? Boom. Boom. I don't know the music. He starts that scroll, right? In a galaxy far, far away. So what are they doing? They're telling you the backstory. They're saying, if you don't get this information, you're not going to understand where we're about to land you. You need to understand. Here's the backstory. Here's what's going on. Here's what's happening. Here's where we are. And so then they can start the story. Genesis 14 is words scrolling through the galaxy, the first 12 verses. The first 12 verses are backstory. The first 12 verses are, all right, we got to set the scene. You got to know what's going. And when you know what's going on, what I'm about to tell you is going to become more important. All right? So, so I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. You'll see Abraham doesn't even come up till like the 12th verse. You're going to be like, where did Abraham go? But the backstory, trust me, it's important. All right? So Genesis chapter 14, verses 1 through 12 says this. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariach, king of Elisar, Ketalomar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shem, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and Bela, king, uh, that is Zor. Got it? Everyone with me? You know these guys? You got their trading cards, right? All right. Stay with me. Here we go. Verse 3. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Ketalormar, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Ketalormar and the kings who were with him came and defeated Raphaim, and Ashtoreth Karnaim, and Zuzim, and Ham, and Emim, and Shavakarithaim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites, who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out. And they joined the battle in the valley of Sidim. With Ketalomar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Emerfel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Alasar, four kings against five. Got it? Here's the battle. Four kings against five. Now, the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Now, 
let, let me just kind of tell you, that's, that's the, what the, the text says. Let me just paint the large picture of what's going on here. Let me show you a map just to kind of get a picture of what's going on here. I know you can't read everything on that, but hopefully at least you can see the colored lines and the arrows and the directions they're going. Here's what happens. Keta Omar was a mob boss. I mean, this is the easiest way to explain it. That's what he was doing. He was telling these kings that are all down the eastern side of the Jordan River. He said, look, you pay me tribute and I will protect you from harm, from anyone coming in and harming you. The other part of that was you don't pay me tribute and you're going to need protection from me. And so, Ketel Omar, that was the deal. And for 12 years, that's what they did. For 12 years, they paid tribute, uh, these kings up and down the eastern side to Ketel Omar. In the 13th year, they said, you know what? We don't want to pay tribute anymore to Ketel Omar. Who's he? We don't want it. We're going to stop paying him. Then in the 14th year, Ketel Omar and three other kings come down and remind them why they need to pay tribute to him. And they literally, that purple line down the eastern side of the Jordan River, down the eastern side of that, that interior water, is literally their war path. And they just came down and took out city after city after city. That's what I read. They just, it was basically, it's a knockout punch every city. After they take them out, they take them out, they take them out, and they keep going and winning every battle. And they get to the bottom of the Dead Sea right there, and they say, you know what, we're going to keep going. They keep going south to El Paran. They show them who's boss. Then they start heading north uh, to Kadesh through the hill country, the Amorites, the Amorites, they, they, they uh, take care of them. And then they're basically heading home from a victory. The five kings along the eastern shore say, you know what? They, feed, they defeated all us individually. What if we all kind of came together? So those five kings came together to battle the four kings that were on their warpath. And the five kings lost big time. And in fact, it says they ran away and they were falling in tar pits, which are a natural feature of um, what happens there in the south end of the Dead Sea. Five kings lost, they end up running home. And the story would be over right there, and it wouldn't even be in the Bible if it were not for verse 12. Because verse 12 says, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Now the story turns. Now the words stop. Now you're zooming in on the Star Destroyer. Now you know where we are, right? They took Lot, and here's the problem. Because they messed with Lot, which means they messed with Abraham, which means they messed with Abraham's God. Because Abraham was promised by God that whoever blesses you, I'm going to bless, and whoever disdains you, I'm going to curse. And now you have a group of people who are cursing and disdaining Abraham's family, and you messed with Lot, and you messed with Abraham, and now you messed with Abraham's God. And now the story turns, and now there's a problem for them. It's a little like my favorite story of something like this is Pastor Tony Evans, when he talks about the fact that when he was a kid, he used to get bullied in middle school. And he used to get bullied. He was, I think, a seventh grader. He said he used to get bullied by this one guy. And I forget, the, I forget his name. But um, he used to get bullied by this one guy. And, you know, as Pastor Tony Evans, if you've ever heard him, he's a 
incredible preacher, master storyteller. And he says, this one guy, you know, he was such a bully. He was shaving in the seventh grade. He was driving, you know, this kid, everyone had this kid in their school. And he's bullying him. And every day he would bully him and take his lunch money. And then one day, Tony tells his dad, yeah, there's this kid bullying me. And he takes my lunch money every day. And then, and then one day, Tony shows up and here comes the kid. He's coming to take his lunch money. You know, he's coming to show him who's boss. He's like Kettle Omar, right? He's coming. And, uh, and all of a sudden, the kid stops and starts backing up. And Tony's like, well, you know, something, what, maybe the kid's afraid of me, doesn't know what's going on. And then Tony turns around, and he sees that his dad got out of the car. And now his dad's standing there. The kid sees his dad. And now Tony said, now I wasn't the problem. My dad was the problem. Because you weren't just messing with me, you were messing with my daddy, he says. And you don't want to mess with him. And that's a little what's going on here. You took Lot, but what you really did is you messed with Abraham, and what you really did is you messed with Abraham's God. And so Abraham hears this, and here's what happens next. Let's pick it up in verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eschol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And as he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought all the, back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So Abraham hears that they had taken Lot and he takes 318 men and he goes after them. And he goes after these four kings. And here's why the backstory was so important. Because if you didn't know what they had just done, you might think, oh, so what? Backyard brawl, Abraham wins, they lose, what's the big deal? But this wasn't a backyard brawl, this wasn't even forces. This is 318 men from Abraham's house versus four kings and their armies. I don't know how many people they had, but I'm guessing it was north of 318. This was an improbable battle. This was something they should not have won. This, these, these four kings had just been on the battlefield and beat five other kings and sent them home packing. They had just come down and totally the eastern shore, the western shore, the south, like they had just dominated everyone. And Abraham and 318 men go and not only defeat them, but take all their possessions. It says he comes back with Lot, all his household. He comes back with all the possessions. He comes back with all the women. He is coming back with a trail of victory behind him. And he accomplished this improbable victory. And so we, we look at that and, and we say, well, what's, what's going on here? Because you have to understand now this is highly unusual. And so here's, where, here's, here's the important part of the story. Now we're getting to where we started, I promise. Abraham comes back, and he actually comes to a place called the Valley of the Kings. And there, there are two kings to greet him, two different kings. And those two kings, as we'll read in a second, really represent 
two different paths that Abraham could take. God's given Abraham a promise. And he comes back from this battle, and these two kings kind of represent and kind of put before Abraham, are you going to take this path, or are you going to take this path? And that's really what this text has brought us to, this critical decision point. So let's pick it up in verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Ketuomar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava. So that's the first king, the king of Sodom. That is the king's valley. Verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. And he, that's Melchizedek, blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anur, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. He's presented with these two kings that greet him in the valley of the kings. One is Melchizedek. Melchizedek's a mystery. It's only this time that he's mentioned in the Old Testament and one other reference in Psalm 110 when David mentions him uh, referring to this instance in the Old Testament. He's a mystery. He walks onto the scene. He walks off the scene. There's some uh, further understanding into him. If you want to read in the book of Hebrews, chapter 7 talks about Melchizedek more. But I want to focus just on his role right here in this particular part of Genesis. His name literally means the king of righteousness. And it says he's king of Salem, which is, means peace. So he's the king of righteousness and peace. And he comes out, and he comes out with bread and wine. Now, I know what you're tempted to think when you hear that. This isn't communion. This, this is not, this is bread and wine were items of hospitality in that culture. Um, this, this is way before, this isn't, this isn't communion like we think about the Lord's table. Bread and wine were much closer to our coffee and donuts than they were to the communion elements at this point. He is showing hospitality. He's basically saying, welcome back. And then he blesses Abraham. He gives him a blessing. And he says to him, blessed be Abram, God, by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So he blesses Abraham, but he also makes clear that the battle you just won, Abram, was because God was with you. God's really the one that won that battle. And you say, well, why is this important? That seems, it seems clear if someone's following it. No, no, no. This is the first time it's ever happened in Scripture. Remember, we're talking about the origins of our faith. This is the first time someone goes out in God's name and wins a battle. And so Melchizedek's sure to tell him, look, not your doing, not your strength. This is God working on your behalf. 
and he blesses him, which is the opposite, right, of Kenna Omar and the kings taking Lot, which is cursing him. So he blesses them. Now, the, the other king that comes out is the king of Sodom. Now, we already have an idea from last week's passage that the king of Sodom's not going to be a good guy. Because in last week's passage, in Genesis 13, 13, we're told this. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Now, a side note, I, I mentioned this in the first service. I just think it's interesting. The original Hebrew didn't have punctuation. So this could really be a good argument for some New Englanders talk. Because you could say they were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Or, you know, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners. That would be the way to say it. But probably the comma belongs there. They were wicked and they were great sinners. But so, so the, he comes out. So this is the king of the wicked, great sinners. Right? This is the king of the wicked, great sinners. And he comes out. And he's, he, what's, what's odd to me is he still wants to act like a king. Remember what just happened to this guy? He was part of the five that got defeated, ran away with their tail between the legs, and barely missed falling in a pit of tar, escaping with his life. Then he comes up to Abraham, acting like a, like a king still, and he says, look, I'll take the people, you take the goods. He wants to demand terms. Now, here's what's going on. You see those old cartoons where they put like an angel on one shoulder and a demon on the other shoulder? That's really not far off from what's going on here. One king is saying, God did this. This is the road you should follow. Keep pursuing this God. Another king is saying, you should, you should take this money. And really what he's saying, according to Dr. Marvin Wilson, who's one of the foremost scholars on Abraham, He's inviting Abraham into a quid pro quo deal. He's basically saying, you take the stuff and you'll owe me later. He, he, that's the way, he was a Canaanite king. That's the way the Canaanites worked. That's the way the Canaanite religion worked. It was all quid pro quo. I do this for you. You do that for me. You do this for your Canaanite gods. They'll do this for you. All a business relationship, all quid pro quo. And so when he says, you take the stuff, it's not because he's being generous. It's because he wants to enter into a business partnership with him. I give you this now. You owe me later. And so now he has two paths to choose. Does he choose Melchizedek? Or does he choose Sodom? Does he take what he could take right now, all these goods that are in the trail behind him? Or is he going to receive this blessing Melchizedek gave him? Now, we've already read the passage, so we know which one he chooses. He, take, he, he not only doesn't take from Melchizedek, he gives 10% of everything he has to Melchizedek. Why does he do that? Because 10%, even before the Levitical priesthood, and you don't have to understand all that right now, has always been a, a sign of, of giving, honoring God to a priest. And Melchizedek's a priest. So giving 10% to the priest is, is affirming and receiving the blessing that he gave to him. But he gave what he didn't have to give. And then he rejected Sodom's offer. No, no, no. You keep your money. You keep your sandals. You keep your food. He said, I won't take anything from you. 
And the reason is because Abraham knew that God can be trusted, or what he's learning is that God can be trusted to make a way and not just make a promise and walk away. Right, because God had made a promise to Abraham. You're going to be a great nation. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to take care of you. But now what Abraham sees is I'm also going to make a way for this to happen. I, you just defeated four armies with 318 men. You can trust me. I'm not just going to make a promise and walk away. I'm going to make a way for this to happen. And so Abraham tithes, he gives 10% to Melchizedek, saying, this is the way I'm choosing. This is the way I'm choosing. This is the way I'm going to walk. This is where my trust is. This is where my faith is. And because I have faith in God, Melchizedek, I can give you 10% even though I don't. I can give you money. I can give it away. I can release this to you. And because I have faith in God, King of Sodom, I can reject your offer. I don't need it. You can take your money. I don't need it. I don't need to go down this road. I don't need to take this from you. And he rejects it. And so I think for this week, our principle as we look at this passage is this. Faith in God frees you. Faith in God frees you to release what you could keep and reject what you shouldn't take. Abraham had every right in the world to keep all the money. He didn't have to give it to Melchizedek. But his faith was in God, so he just generously released it He gave it, he blessed him. And faith, your faith in God and your trust in God will allow you to be generous, will allow you to release things that you didn't think. Because why? Because my faith and my trust isn't in this stuff I'm holding on to. It's not in how tight I can hold it. It's all in the God that's holding me, right? I mean, that's where my faith and my trust is. So I can be generous and I can release things that I have every right to hold on to, but in God's name, I can bless others with it. And I can reject what I shouldn't take in the first place. I don't have to go into that business deal. I don't have to go into that quid pro quo. I don't have to enter that. You know what? Because I'm going to trust in God that God's going to take care of it. And this is the answer to the question we asked in the beginning. It was Abraham's trust in God that freedom to release and reject. God would bring about the promise. God would deliver on the land. And this is our origin story as well, that God can be trusted. So what is it that you're supposed to release that you're holding on to? What is it that maybe in your life, maybe it's something as simple as, as, as being generous with, with your time or your finances, and maybe you're holding on to it so tightly because you're afraid. And to remind us this morning and to remember this morning that because my faith is in God and it really rests on him and his goodness. I can release these things. I can be generous. I can hold with open hands the things that God has entrusted me with. But maybe it's not money. Maybe it's bitterness or unforgiveness that you're holding on to and then you don't want to let go of it and that you feel like you've got a right to hold it and other people tell you you've got a right to hold on to that bitterness. You've got a right not to forgive them. They deserve it. And the only way you're going to be able to let go of it, the only way you're going to be able to release it is with a full faith and trust in God that says, I will trust in the God of justice. I will trust in the God of righteousness. I will trust in the God that fights for me. I will trust in the God that goes before me. And I'm going to let this go. 
and I'm going to let it go. Not because I'm strong, not because they deserve it, but because my faith is in God and my trust is in him. And so you release things that maybe otherwise you wouldn't be able to release, but it also frees you up to reject things that you might be tempted to grab at. I mean, Abraham, I know he took the oath, and incidentally, this is where raise your right hand goes back to. Abraham raises his hand and takes an oath. I know he took the oath, and he said he wouldn't take anything, but there had to be a time where he had to at least think about it on the walk home. Like, do I keep this stuff or not? And at some point along the road, he said, no. Maybe it was just with the instance with Melchizedek when he told him God had done it, but at some point he said, no. I don't need to keep this stuff. And I'm certainly not entering into a relationship with the king of Sodom over there. So what is it you might be tempted to take that you know you shouldn't take? Maybe it's a business deal that would pad your wallet, but you know would not glorify God. Maybe it's a job that you know you could take and move to, but you know is not the place where you're supposed to be. Maybe it's a relationship that you know might bring you some temporary joy, but you also know wouldn't bring glory to God. Maybe you believe in trusting that God promised you a spouse, and it, but you know it's not the person you're with. Trusting God says, I can say no to those things that are not of God because my faith is in him. People who trust in God are going to be growing in generosity and in holiness. And I ask our team to come back, our worship team, as we close. You know, the reason and the greatest model of this type of life is Christ himself for us. Because Jesus Christ lived this life. Philippians chapter 2 says Jesus emptied himself. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped at. He released that, took on flesh, came down and dwelt among us. He also, when he was here living this life on earth, was tempted by Satan himself to take shortcuts, to to enter into deals with Satan himself. He was given an offer by Pilate. You know, you could spare, I could spare your life. But Jesus could reject all of those because his faith was in God the Father. Same with you and with me. When I was, um, when I used used to travel when I was a little bit uh, just younger and uh, years ago when I traveled, I always got nervous traveling. I don't know how many of you are nervous traveling, not nervous traveling, but I always wanted to make sure I had everything with me, right? I would check my boarding pass 10 times, I would ask Wendy if she had her boarding pass 10 times. I would, do I have the, you know, printed out copy of the rental car and the hotel agreement and everything there? And I got it in like waterproof things. And like, I got every, I'm checking and check it and check it and make sure I had everything. I mean, now that things have changed a bit, like so much is, you know, on the phone, like my boarding pass, my, you know, my rental car agreement, like everything's, I, I got it all there. Like, my travel has changed. Am I even getting ready for it? Like, I'm not as nervous. I, I, I you know, I, sometimes a while back at some point, I said, you know what? If I got my phone and I got my wallet, if I have to, I can pretty much figure anything else out. 
And I'm going to take some stuff with me. But if I forgot a charger or some article of clothing, I'm sure there's a Walmart that, that we can get those things taken care of, right? So I'm much less nervous, not really worried about it. And I was thinking, you know, I need to make that switch in my spiritual life too. And that's what faith is. Because if I've got God the Father who has made his promises to me, who, who has been good by his word, just like Shade said in her prayer, you know, who has come through time and time again. And if I've got God the Son who came down and gave his life for me and laid down his life on a cross and, and, and went to the grave and died and rose again and his blood covers my sin and his forgiveness covers me. If I've got God the Son who's done that for me and if I've got God the Holy Spirit who lives in my heart, who is, guides me, who gives me words to speak when I don't know when to speak words, who comforts, who leads, who directs. Like if I've got all of that, then we can probably figure the rest out along the way. Like if every, everything else we could probably figure out, we probably don't need to hold on as tight. And we can release some things that we could otherwise hold on to, but in God's name, release them. And we can reject some things that we just know is not what God wants us to take. Because I'm not, I don't have to make that, I don't have to go that way to bring about God's plan in my life. And so I wanna pray and the team's gonna sing a song and we'll close, but maybe one action point. I thought about what's an action point for this one. Maybe this week you'll just memorize a verse of scripture that'll remind you of your faith in God and how that changes the way we look at everything else. I, maybe Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Maybe it'll be something like that. Maybe it'll be Psalm 23. Maybe it will be something out of Romans 8. Maybe it will be Philippians 1.6 that says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Maybe it will be Philippians 4.6 that says, don't be anxious about anything, but by prayer and petition, supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Well, just, I... I, I would encourage you to memorize one verse this week that reminds you that because of your faith in God, you are freed up to release what you could keep and to reject what you should not take. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit and your love. Lord, we love you. And God, I pray that you would help us because I confess, we confess. There are times we have held on to things too tightly that you have wanted us to let go. And there are times we walk through a door that we should have left closed. So forgive us for those times in the past and strengthen us for those times in the future that we may face. That we might walk with faith in you and glorifying you in Jesus' name. Amen. The team's going to sing one song. I'm going to ask, could you stand? I'm going to ask you to do this. Because right now, I know what's going on in those kids' ministry rooms. They have run out of material five minutes ago. So if you've got kids in our kids' ministry, can you please go get them? Otherwise, if you don't, feel free to stay, worship, and sing this last song with us. God bless you.